Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. The text for today is actually Psalm 51, and also its backstory, the story of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. And you are certainly invited to turn to Psalm 51 in your hymnals or in the Bibles, in your pews, and kind of follow along while I'm speaking up here. My daughter, Becky, and her husband, Ryan, have four pet chickens. Clemency, Roxanne, Curmudgeon, and Rex. A Delaware, a Plymouth, and two Bantam Silkies. Rex and Curmudgeon, the Bantam sil Silkies, are these ridiculous-looking birds. They kind of look like walking feather dusters. Clemency, the Delaware is your typical big, fat, white chicken. And she, as you might expect, bosses Rex and Curmudgeon relentlessly and mercilessly. In fact, those two little poor bantam silkies spend most of their lives trying to avoid clemency. So, whenever I'm doing my chicken watching, I'm reminded that the world of chickens and the world of human beings have at least this in common. Pecking orders structure chicken life just like they do human life. And as you know, those pecking orders don't quit just because you walk through the church doors. On the contrary, churches play all of those power games too. And as you guys are about to find out, if you don't know already, you've been called to a kind of a distinct position, the office of the holy ministry. You've all learned that it is a distinct office instituted by God himself. You have a position of authority. You'll be given the power to preach the gospel, the power to administer the sacraments, the power to proclaim the forgiveness of sins publicly. It's a marvelous distinction. And you almost get instant respect. People will immediately see the distinctions between you and them. And so will you. Some people will say that you are holier than they are. Little kids may very well call you Jesus. So what does that all mean? <clears throat> What does it all say about you? Ah, well, whispers the cleverest voice in the chicken coop. Isn't it obvious? Come closer. Let me tell you. What it means for you is this. You will be like God. Being a pastor makes you a cut above the riffraff. The gap between you and them actually starts increasing already a little bit at your ordination. And the distance between you and God starts decreasing at the same time. You know a lot more about God than they do. The lines of power are already shifting in your favor. You guys think I'm wrong? <laughs> you all think that's absurd? Well, let me tell you a little story that a friend of mine told me when I was still a young and stupid pastor. He told me 
that he got a letter one day from a woman who lived in another city that happened to be the daughter of one of his members. In the letter, this woman tore into him because he had not visited her mother for at least six months. Well, my friend was embarrassed and he was angry and he was also convicted because the fact was that he hadn't visited her mother and furthermore, he didn't want to visit her and he could think of all kinds of good reasons not to visit her. First of all, because she wasn't really a shut-in. She was an old woman, but she could get along just fine. Plus, she had all kinds of family in town who were very well able to bring her to church, except none of them ever came to church. Instead, all they did was complain. They complained about the church. They complained about everybody in the church. They complained about trivial wrongs that had been done to them 20 years ago. That's what they did, complain, complain, complain. Well, my friend said that he had listened and listened until he had finally gotten sick of it and simply stopped calling. So, this letter ignited a battle inside of him that kept him up all that night. Part of him knew what he needed to do. But part of him argued that he had every reason in the world not to do it. After all, he had his pride. And he knew that the elders would back him up because they didn't like this family any more than he did. <clears throat> but that brought him no peace. So, the next morning, he wrote a letter to this woman in which he said that he was sorry that he was wrong for not taking care of her mother and he asked for forgiveness, and he promised that he would visit her mother that day and regularly thereafter, and that's what he did. <laughs> well, about a week later, he gets another letter from this woman. He opens it, and he's kind of amazed at what he reads because she's tickled pink to forgive him. She forgives him up one side and down the other. In fact, he told me that he had never been forgiven like that before. She was so exuberant in her forgiveness that my friend started laughing. The weight of guilt that he had been carrying around inside of him disappeared. He told me that it was a remarkable experience that he wouldn't mind at all repeating. But at the end of the letter was the sentence that he wanted me to hear and was the reason that he even told me this story. And I've never forgotten it. She wrote this. This is the first time that I've ever heard a pastor admit that he was wrong and ask for forgiveness. You see, this guy had asked, and I guess she just decided to take advantage of the opportunity. Only God doesn't sin. Only God doesn't ask for forgiveness. The distinction between you and God never grows fuzzy, huh? Are you guys gonna be one of those pastors? Truth is, we are all poor, miserable sinners at heart. But you guys are gonna have all kinds of people stroking your ego. Pastor, what a fine sermon. Pastor, attendance really has gone up since you've gotten here, isn't, hasn't it? And on and on, so it goes. Behind all those well-meaning voices, the sweet lie of Satan hits its mark. You can be like God. 
Pride swells under the right conditions, doesn't it? And before you know it, sin doesn't seem to be as big a problem for you as it is for other people. You are a little holier. And the harder it gets for you to see your own sin, the easier it gets for you to see the distinctions between you and others until you are the pastor who can never be wrong. It happened to King David. When you read about David's adultery and then his murder in 2 Samuel 11, you get no sense that David saw that he had done anything wrong, not a hint. Now everyone assumes that David must have been feeling terribly guilty inside, but maybe the story was told as it is because he didn't. The king is like God, and God can do what he wants. That's a scary thought. David might have been damned for sin that he could no longer see. Had it not been for the grace of God who got to him through the word of the prophet Nathan. Remember what Nathan said? You are the man. You are the man. Only a historicizing, keep it at arm's length, let's see how the scholars parse this, my sin is not David's sin kind of reader, can fail to bridge the gap and see that this is not just a story about some guy named David and God, but it is a word from God to you. Those of you who have ears to hear, you are the man. And if you aren't listening, no one can help you. But this word from God, you see, reset the distinctions that David had fuzzied up. We see it in Psalm 51, which was prayed by David, the newly converted sinner. When David pleads, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, he's not just asking God to have this abstract change of heart towards him. He wants and needs to actually get washed. He felt dirty, as sure as my friend felt that bowling ball in the pit of his stomach. He felt sin's suffocating grip and he needed God to do something. I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. That's personal. The sweet lie of Satan no longer deluded him. In his innermost being, he knew the truth. He was not God. God was his judge. And his eternal destiny was at stake. But again, you can keep this psalm at arm's length if you want to. Keep it in its historical context. Pray it with your mouth, but not your heart. Not be the me or my in, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Not recognize your own transgressions, not set your own sins before you, not admit, not confess, not really. But you see, my prayer is that you would be given the Holy Spirit's grace to hear this word from God as God's word to you. You are the man. And every day of your life, pray the prayer of the newly converted sinner, the pastor who admits that he is wrong, terribly wrong, and asks for forgiveness. Because you see, the thing is, God can't wait to do the cleansing. He can't wait to do the cleanup. 
through that magnificent gospel. God can't wait to create a clean heart and renew a right spirit within you. I have put away your sin, he said. You shall not die. That woman's eagerness to forgive her friend, my friend is far surpassed by God's eagerness to forgive you. Paul said that he gave his son into death for our transgressions and raised him again for our justification. Well, that's kind of a systematician's sober way of saying that God won't let anything get in the way of his forgiving you, even when you killed his son. When you cry to God in true fear and humility, it's like he starts laughing and says, I'm not going to miss this opportunity. So remember in the parable of the lost son, the father runs out to meet his son, hugs him and kisses him and throws him a party. The father is tickled pink to forgive. And he says, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat. The spirit and the bride say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly, richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, forgiveness is not just this fancy theory or this abstract doctrine. It's a mighty act of God. It is salvation. It is redemption. It is rescue. Forgiveness is resurrection from the dead. That's why God raised Christ. The guy who gets forgiven gets raised. To the poor, miserable sinner, forgiveness is like hearing your bride say, of course I love you, when you thought she was gone forever. Forgiveness is like a kid getting a big hug from his father after he broke his favorite beer mug. Forgiveness is like hearing the doctor say, I don't need to see you anymore. It's like getting a cold drink of water after an excruciating yoga class. God's forgiveness makes the dead alive. And to think that the Spirit's creating, forgiving, redeeming act is just a foretaste of the feast to come. Why would you want to miss out on that experience, the sublime joy? And having tasted, make your ministry all about taking and offering this life-giving gospel to poor sinners like yourself with joy and humility and compassion and patience and love as the shepherds of God, God's people serve. Now there's a power word for you. Serve them with God's word so that they can eat and be satisfied and praise God with joyful hearts right alongside you. Amen. Now may the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which passes all our understanding, keep your hearts and minds together in Christ Jesus. Amen.